Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to episode number three of Being Famous Podcast. My name is Cliff. I am your host. As always, I appreciate you checking out the podcast. If you haven't checked out episode number one or episode number two, please do. Episode number one is actor Joseph D'Onofrio. Episode number two is actor John Philbin. For more information on myself and the podcast, please visit beingfamouspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe to get all the latest podcast info. Facebook and Instagram are at Being Famous Podcast. While living in Tampa, Florida in the late 80s and early 90s, freestyle music ruled the radio airwaves, and nobody ruled those airwaves more than Stevie B. Dubbed the Freestyle King, Stevie went on to have a number one hit in 1990 with Because I Love You, the Postman song. He's got a new album coming out called Best of Life. He still writes, still produces, and continues to tour actively. Dude has a lot going on. Without further ado, let's get right into it with the Freestyle King, Stevie B. Stevie, what is up, brother? Hey, Cliff. Nice to be on the program. Thank you for having me on Being Famous Podcast. Where are you calling from, Stevie? I'm calling from Vegas, actually. And you're calling from where? I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, brother. That's a good town. Yeah, man. Charlotte's cool. It's growing like crazy, but uh, it's a good spot. Ever been to Charlotte? I've passed through Charlotte a couple times. I mean, you know, nice town. Ever performed in Charlotte? Never performed in Charlotte. I don't have a big audience over there. I know there was a a lot of Latinos moving into Carolina, but not big enough where any promoters would come and uh, hire us over there. I know you're a South Florida guy. Are you originally from Miami or Fort Lauderdale? I'm from Miami originally, but I've, uh, most of my stuff was done up in Lauderdale. You know, Lauderdale and Miami are all connected, you know? How long did you live in Miami? I lived in Miami until I was probably around 16, and I moved away, went to college. And, uh, you know, then I was back and forth. And then over the years, I settled back in Miami, and that's when my music career around 85 started to blossom a little bit. And, of course, after my career took off, I moved to New York and then to Cali, and I kind of never went back to Miami permanently. Where did you go to college? Florida A&M University. You went to FAM, man? Went to FAM, bro. You went to FAMU? Went to FAM. Went to FAM on a tennis scholarship. Wow, that's pretty crazy. I never knew that about you, man. Yep, I was a tennis player. My, I was an aspiring pro tennis player early in my years. I mean, besides the music thing, uh, I wanted to play tennis. Very cool. What years were you at FAMU? FAM, I did uh, 76, 77, 78, round in there. That's pretty crazy, man. I actually graduated high school in Tallahassee. Oh, he was in T-Town. Yeah, man. T-Town. That town, that town matured me. You know, normally your college towns is where the kids grow up. You know, you become an adult now. And being around fam and then FSU right next door, I had the best of both worlds as far as tennis competition is concerned and just great facilities. And it was good. I had a really great experience in Tallahassee. Did you graduate from Florida a and I did not. I did not graduate. I went, I stopped and uh, I had I opened up a club in uh, Tallahassee while I was still in school. And I wind up just doing the entrepreneur thing, moved back to Florida and went into, at that time, the window tinting thing was just uh, going big. Pretty cool, man. What was the name of the club that you opened while you were in college? It was called JC Productions. Jam Club. We had a thing called Jam Club where I had these DJs. And uh, back then, we, I was one of the hottest guys with the biggest systems back then. I met another guy named Dale Condry. He had a system. So we wind up creating this thing called Jam Club. So we called it JC Productions. So how long did JC Productions last in Tallahassee? I did that for about a year. And uh, I moved out of Tallahassee. I stopped school altogether and wind up going back to Miami and opening up window tenting place. Okay. So you leave college, you move out of Tallahassee, then you move back down to Miami. Now, at some point in time, you ended up opening 
a um, landscaping business. Is that correct? Yeah, landscaping came later. I did the window tending thing for a while, and it was doing actually doing very good. A friend of mine convinced me. He said, "Hey, man, if you invest in this lawn service thing, we can make some money." And he knew how to do it. He was a landscaper, and uh, I wind up getting a truck. I picked up a lot of clients. Actually, I was making pretty good money back in those days. So, as you're doing lawn care in South Florida, Stevie, are you plotting your move? into the music industry and as an entertainer. Once I got the equipment, I said, you know what? I want to dabble back in. So I got this little warehouse down in Florida City, which is uh, near Homestead. And uh, I got a little warehouse and I, I started to buy little gear as a go. I said, well, I don't know if the singing thing will ever do. I'm a long guy. so But at least I can maybe try to be an engineer. I picked up a couple of nice pieces of used analog gear, a big board, a 16-track Scully uh, tape machine, and and it kind of went from there. And once I got the warehouse, I would do my yards right at dark, go take my shower and then start going in the studio and dabbling. At some point, I actually got pretty good at it, you know, and was able to cut tracks. And I, I met a couple kids by the name of BVSMP. I cut a track on them called I Need You, actually, which wind up going platinum over the years. If you look up BVSMP, I Need You, that's one of the tracks I'm singing on. It's one of my first shitty productions but hey it made some noise which kind of motivated me you know yeah definitely did that get any radio airplay yeah it got radio play in miami uh because of the manager guy that took over the group he had some hookups in miami so beyond miami i'm pretty sure he got some uh some local play and maybe some small towns but the record really didn't take off until he went over to meet them and he met bcm which is brian carter music brian took the record and it went big, and it went, eventually they went to Columbia, and it wound up going platinum. Do you still talk to those guys today? I actually have not spoken to them my whole career. They went their way kind of ugly because they I was supposed to make percentages off them, but they flew to Coop. You know, they went to Germany, did their business, and of course, right at 87, 88, I became the Stevie B thing. Since the beginning of that Stevie B thing up until now, I actually haven't even talked to those guys. Yeah, man, that's a bit unfortunate and kind of a shame. It was kind of a shame because, uh, they, well, they took credit for a lot of the stuff they did, but I wasn't really mad at them. You know, I had my, I got blessed. Phil, yeah. I want to circle back around, man, to when you were doing landscaping and you were also doing some production work. Uh, you had mentioned that you bought some analog gear, you bought a tape machine, you bought a 16-track Scully. Stevie, I'm guessing all of that stuff you learned on your own and were self-taught. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, totally. Totally. Because, you know, I didn't really have the money and then I didn't know about full sale and I didn't know about engineering schools. And, you know, you're talking about back in the 70s, that stuff wasn't available early on. And then in the 80s, I didn't know about full sale. And if I did, it was really expensive. I think full sale back at that time was maybe 10000 15000 for the course. And I didn't even know about it until later on until I actually started getting some interns. And I heard about interns and I said, I need engineers. And I wind up getting a few engineers that went to full sale. I'm like, what's full sale? Well, it's like engineering college and by that time i had already knew how to engineer and i had met tolga and pj and those guys and we were already sort of amateurish polished we were enough to do our own analog recordings and at that time that's when the digital world was just uh, being birthed how steep was the learning curve to learn all that stuff a lot a lot yes because at so at one point it was just keyboards and you plug it right into your your inputs and uh or your you micing up drums and stuff like that or and you know i was lucky enough that drum machines and i had an 808 early on and i think i had this dd 
10-something. It was one of the first ones that came out. So the learning curve was like learning Chinese because you're used to people physically playing an instrument to all of a sudden now you could play that same instrument with your hands. Uh, you, you know, you wind up saying, hey, I have an idea. You mean I can just tap this and with a kick and a, hair, a hi-hat and a snare, I can do that right now with this machine? That, you know, that opened up my eyes to, hey, man, I don't need to call in musicians or anything. I can just have a decent idea. And at that time, I don't know what kind of ideas I have. All I know is that the, the you know, the, the kitchen and the, and the ingredients and everything is right there. It began to open up my mind and let me experiment. At some point, I had to call in some people to say to do patterns and stuff like that until I learned it myself. And, and But that learning curve was very deep. You know, I was just talking about the physical playing. I wasn't talking about the technical parts of it, having to hook it up. You know, at that time, it wasn't even MIDI. You know, we used to have MIDI sync. We used to have to put a sync tone, a empty tone to tape. And that's what used to lock the machines together. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. But we overcame it and we overcame it to the point to where we could really focus in on creativity. That's what we got to at one point. The computer came in and really, really exploded for us as far as the uh, possibilities were concerned. Yeah. And you had mentioned Full Sail, Stevie. For people out there who don't know what Full Sail is, Full Sail is a university right outside of Orlando, Florida. You can get degrees in like uh, entertainment, media, technology. When I was in high school in Tallahassee, I briefly looked at Full Sail, Stevie, and then I realized how much it was. And I was like, yeah, uh, I'm not going to be going to Full Sail. It is not cheap. Well, you can imagine back then, I mean, the way we talk about 10 grand today, we talk about it like lunch money. But uh, back then, 10 grand was 100. It was like 100 grand. And I didn't know if it was financed or anything. Like I, like I said, I didn't know about Full Sail until later. All right, man. So let's jump into your music career. In 1986, 1987, that's when you really start to develop Stevie B. In 1987, you have a big club hit with the song Party Your Body. So should we start in 1986 or 1987? And talk to me a little bit about Tolga, the former rock singer who became your producer. Well, let's talk about 1986 because that was like a 86, 87 was a transition year because 86 is where I met Tolga. I had already been pressing up 12 inches and I was pretty good at making music, taking the idea. You know, back then we used to press up 45s or we used to press up vinyl 12 inches. And uh, we used to run it by the uh, record pools or the radio stations or we would run it to the distributor to try to get it into the outlets. That taught me how to be an independent label. So I was at Bo Crane's record pool and I was right outside and I was about to deliver a box of records to Mike Evans, who used to run the record pool for Bo. And as I was walking in or out tolga just a tall long-haired rock looking guy we kind of crossed paths and i guess he was taking records over to mike also so you know i guess we uh conjured up a conversation and he's like what do you do well i do this and this and he i said well then what do you do he said yeah i do this and then i just did a record on bo griffin one of the radio personalities at power 96 and i guess they did a little track on her and i heard it and i'm like whoa this is pretty good who produced this you know all of the formalities who did this that that he said oh yeah i did it me and my partner pj i said well i had just moved my studio to lauderdale at that time i said well i have a really big place and uh would you like to see it he came over saw i had a beautiful look i mean i went into this huge place cliff i mean it was like I was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. It was 5,000 square feet. It was big. I always thought like that. So he wind up coming over. I say, well, I need help. Do you want to join me? And literally, he joined me that night. 
I went to his apartment. He had a computer set up with some speakers living at his sister's house at the time. So he had a little makeshift studio and he bought his computer over and he plugged it into my system. And, and I got to tell you, it was historical. Uh, Tolga and I became best of friends and we wind up learning and producing stuff together. And I mean, Tolga worked on, on probably hundreds of songs, hundreds. He was in that demand as a producer at one point. He was with me. He was, he wasn't exclusive. You know, he worked a lot with me and that's where we start to develop that sound, that Stevie B sound and that what they would call today, that freestyle, Miami freestyle sound. And so it began. That's a really, really, really cool story, man. Stevie, if you trace back the history of freestyle music, can it be traced back to one artist? Who was the first freestyle artist? I don't know. Maybe maybe Shannon. I'm going to say because Shannon was way early. Uh, I'm not going to say Lisa because Lisa wasn't freestyle. She was more R&B, pop, wonder if you take me home, that kind of stuff. It did more urban than it did even Latino or white. She was more in the heavy urban clubs at the time. And then she was with Full Force and she was with uh, more of the urban crowd. But she came on board as freestyle later on when her career started to go down a little bit. Uh, She was sort of, you know, she was sort of adopted by our audience. And she's kind of been there as sort of a stepchild ever since. I don't think she ever acknowledged that she was a freestyle artist, but I'm pretty sure she accepted the role, you know? Yeah, and when you're saying Lisa, uh, Stevie, you're referring to Lisa Lisa and the Colt Jam. That's an interesting take, and I agree with you. I think that, I wonder if I take you home, to me, that had, of all her songs, the most freestyle-type feel than anything else that she ever did, because a lot of her stuff was just poppy, like Lost in Emotion and Head to Toe. Those were pop songs, but that's an interesting take on her. I wanted to ask you this because I'm very interested, and I can't think of a better person to ask this question to. To me, freestyle piggybacks off of synth pop and new wave. Would you agree with that? Yes, but you got to remember your term freestyle was not a coined term uh, until way later on. It wasn't really formulated yet. You had the TKAs, then you had the Shannons, the Naobis uh, from from Sal and Fever. Then you had Sleeping Bag Records with Joyce Sims. You had a lot of stuff on the fringes. And Mantronics did a lot of electronic bass at the time, but it didn't cross to us until later. So what was considered freestyle was the Chris Barbosa, Ligget and Barbosa. That's with the George Lamont. And Ligget and Barbosa did Shannon also. Dun, dun. With all the orchestra hits and that energy, 126 beats per minute, 128. So they developed it out of New York first. And then Pretty Tony took a shot at it with Trenier. Uh, They made some noise. And during that period, it was motivating me. And that's when I went in and did Party of Body. And I said, you know what? This might be an easy style for me because it's easy. You know, I could do, oh, pretty lady, coming up and dancing me. I was actually focusing on Trans Europe Express. What was the name of the group? Craftwork. Uh, I was heavy into craftwork and more the European style because I, I would lean that way because of Tolga. It was their influence. I said, well, we can lend on this style and bring it in, but... It wasn't something that we were consciously saying, we're going to target this. We were really just experimenting. And then, of course, when Noel and George and, and TKA and all them hit, then we started to emulate more of uh, with the orchestra hits, 126, 808 kicks, hard snare, 
that kind of stuff with kind of like some smooth vocals, simple vocals, because I wasn't really a singer at that time. Never kind of really became one, you know. Stevie B has a style, you know. T- singing to me is sort of almost like talking, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned Noel, Stevie, and this goes back to a little bit of what I was saying earlier in regards to new wave and synth pop. If you take Noel's song, Silent Morning, and I don't want to compare Noel to lead singer of Depeche Mode, Dave Gahan, but Silent Morning, to me, there it is. There's that synth pop, new wave type sound. It sounds very much like Depeche Mode. Would you agree? Absolutely. So that's who we were That's who we were going after, Depeche Mode, AHA, uh duran duran uh we wanted that european feel because that's what the gothic new york style was at the time new york was very dark their mood was very dark silent morning wake up and you're not by my side all that kind of stuff whereas in miami our climate was different our atmosphere was different we were sunny we were on the beach. We, you know, we had life. We didn't have that morbidity for our music. So Tolga and I said, we're not going to go that dark. We were happy. So we wanted to do Party Your Body and Dreaming of Love. And I didn't want to go with all the, the sad temperament that the New Yorkers were going after. Tony Moran and all those guys, uh, they were very morbid, very dark. Uh, we tended to go more. And, and that's what we bought to freestyle we bought bought more of the major chords instead of the minor chords on the beach instead of in a, a dark new york club or atmosphere not with the dark or uh, the the black fingernails and the black clothes the, the, you know the just the goth kind of style so we came with i mean if you look at some of the tapes of me and toga he's got on miami beach shorts and tank tops and it was just a different feeling and then the music that influenced us like the glorious estefans and the stuff out of miami was just a whole different atmosphere so that's what formulated my style spring love i mean springtime to me was the best summertime is for me and miami was the best you know and my experience was different than what the north was getting so uh from that normally you're going to get a different recipe you're going to get a different flavor and that's what we brought yeah and you guys definitely brought it and i couldn't agree with you more stevie that latin freestyle miami type sound is feel-good music that's what i've always kind of labeled it it's feel-good music it's beach music it's put it on in your car roll down the windows open the sunroof and uh it can't help but put a smile on your face you mentioned tony moran earlier what's your thoughts on tony moran and the latin rascals at the time i thought they were they were good they were emulating that duran duran and depeche mode and well, you didn't have to have you didn't have to be a great singer. You can just have a style. You can be like a Sinatra, you know, and silent morning. Wake up and you're not by my side. So you didn't have to be Michael Jackson. You didn't have to be any of those things. But if you had a badass track that could go in the club, the Latin Rascals brought that. They weren't great singers, but their productions were fire. And they had good hooks, you know. Uh, they fit into the mode of what was happening at the time, no doubt about that. Cool. So talk to me about 1987 and 1988. 1987, you released the club hit Party Your Body. And then in 1988, you released your debut album with the same title, Party Your Body. Tell me about 87 and 88. From 87 to 88, I was already pressing that record. I had already pressed Party Your Body up on, on my Midtown label. So I was trying to break that record for over a year. I worked it and I just couldn't get I couldn't get any footing. And then once a couple of clubs at that time, the skating rinks and the clubs were big. And it was a club called Nepenthe out of Lauderdale. 
uh, Al Peters is the DJ. I'll never forget Al. He was one of the first ones to play it. And then Power 96, Bill Tanner, the program director, gave us a shot after, you know, he heard it on the mix shows. That's how you used to break a record through the mix shows. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, through the mix shows, it was getting so much attention that uh, they had to add it. And once I got added in Miami, New York went on board. And once New York went on board, a distributor called me uh, out of uh, New York. And that distributor was contacted by Herb Molis, which was at LMR Records. And they say, hey, you got that single. We'd like to sign your single. And uh, it kind of, kind of blossomed from there. That had to be exciting. So what are you thinking at that time? Are you pretty optimistic? Are you thinking that, wow, this is game on and you're just about to take it to the next level? What was your mindset at that point in time? Were you optimistic? Well, I was a little bit, you know, I'm an optimistic by nature. I'm optimist by nature. So I'm a forward thinking guy. I really don't do a whole lot of things unless I really believe in it. I must have believed in it because I took it that far and I kept trying and I kept saying, man, this is just as good as what's playing out. This is just as good. Why won't you give me a chance? Why won't you give me a chance kind of thing? And just so happens I was right. It was just as good. So all of a sudden, this is just how fast it happens. I got local airplay, and then all of a sudden, I started to get those calls to come and perform. But I'm not ready to perform because I don't have a look. I don't have an image. I don't have anything. You know, I still got a lot of hair on my head. I got, I got a beard. I'm, I'm a little bit heavy at the time. You know, I'm married with kids, and I wanted to be an engineer and a producer. And the only reason I did Party of Body at the time was I didn't have anybody else to sing it. So I went in and did it, and I say, well, you know, I'm going to put the name Stevie B. It did give me some optimism. And then all of a sudden I started to get calls to say, hey, can you come and perform at our skating rink at our club? And I'm like, how much are you going to pay me? They said, oh, you know, at that time, you know, 1500 bucks was a lot of money. Give me 1500 bucks. You want me to sing that song? One song, 1500 bucks you're going to give me. And I wind up doing, a, you know, at some point doing a couple of nights. You know, I can go from one part of town to the other and, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't step on each other. So I'm like, OK, let me put my OK, you can become Stevie B. From there, I started to get calls out of New York once the distributor took it from LMR and they said, would you like to come up to New York? Uh, I got a call from a lady called Betty and she booked all of the disco people at the time. So remember, the freestyle people are just coming on and expose had point of no return. And Lewis told me one time, he said, man, the girls are working up in New York. They're living up there almost. They're doing so many shows. They're making twenty five hundred, three thousand a show. I think it was twenty five. I'm not going to even exaggerate. Maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand a show, which was great because in New York, you could do four or five shows a night. And I wind up getting like 15 shows booked for New York. My first run. And I got to tell you, I wind up living in New York after that. It changed my life. It, I'm like, wow. And one night I can make four or 5,000. And of, of course, as I had another hit, the demand got higher and then it just blew up from there. And, you know, I played my cards right. I was lucky to continue. And we'll talk about the next records. I'm pretty sure they'll be coming in the questions. Well, before we go any further, let's talk about my favorite song by you, which is Spring Love. Spring Love was off of your debut album, party your body tell me about spring love spring love didn't come until later until after i got my album deal you remember spring love didn't chart so well uh as well as party your body did on the dance charts at that time i only had a single deal so i said well shit how do i get a album deal so me and toga went to the studio well, we go to the studio we went into the hotel and uh he had an emulator a emacs and we were used to cut right there i had the 808 so i programmed the drums he did the keys and I wind up writing Dreaming of Love and just doing a little demo. And I went in and sang it live to Herb 
at his office. He was so blown away, he says, okay, I'm going to give you an album deal. And from that next single, he gave me the album deal. And from there, uh, by the end of that year, we wind up doing the album, which had No More Tears and Spring Love and all the hits that came off that, you know, Stop the Loves, a lot of stuff on there. And you shot a video for Spring Love, correct? Yes. It's a video for, for Dreaming of Love also. Where were those videos shot? Dreaming of Love was shot in a church, an old abandoned church in New York City, in Manhattan. Spring Love was shot in Lauderdale. Uh, and you see one when I have the little, uh, the car with the with the uh, tiger seats. And that was supposed to be a Corvette, but I guess the Corvette didn't show up. I forgot the name of that car, a Cavalier or whatever it is. One of my uh, assistants had that car and I wound up having it. And it was a convertible and I had to use it. For the video for Spring Love. Do you remember what the budgets were for those videos? I forget the budgets. I mean, back then, videos were very expensive. I think they might have spent on Dreaming of Love. They might have spent 50, 75K or, and uh, Spring Love maybe the same. Any kind of love at all from MTV back then? No, no, no. You got to remember, back that time, I wasn't white enough. And then once after I wasn't, after hammering all them, I wasn't black enough. So I got caught in between. So even when I had, uh, because I love you, VH1 and all them would not play it. We were still dealing with the race, you know, the divisional thing with music. Even if I had the number one record, I'd be Bette Midler and Elton John and Whitney Houston, but I still couldn't get on the, on the major uh, video shows. Yeah, that's pretty messed up, man. And I want to talk to you about Because I Love You. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but I want to circle back around to what you said a little bit earlier. You were talking about New York. So you moved up north. Did you just basically pack your bags up and head north? Is that what you did? Yes. So uh, I wind up getting an apartment over in, uh, in Man- well, I was in a hotel for a year and some change. And then the label that I went is with the Left Racks, uh, Left Rack City in New York. They owned all these apartments. So they wind up uh, giving me an apartment over in, in Queens. How was that? Did you like New York? <laughs> that was a pretty, <laughs> a pretty amazing experience. Like I said, I never lived in New York like that. I was in Manhattan. But then going over to Queens, it's like, whoa, okay. If it wasn't for the money, I wouldn't live in New York City. Yeah, I'm with you on that, man. Concrete jungle. But uh, how did that affect you musically? Because you were talking earlier about how New York was dark and kind of had a bit of a goth feel to it and the freestyle was a bit darker. So being a South Florida guy, how did New York affect you musically? Only song I ever cut in New York was I Want to Be the One. And that came later on. But uh, all my stuff was cut in in Florida, South Florida. So while you were in New York, did you still maintain residence in South Florida? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still had my home. I was still married to my first wife at that time. I had to go home at some point. Yeah, man. That's the way it works. Got to get home to uh, wifey at some point in time, right? Moving down the timeline of your career, 1989 rolls around. You release In My Eyes, which was a great album. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, The In My Eyes album is... uh... Uh, I was really, really, you know, just heavily inspired at the time and on the road and doing well. And uh, I mean, by that time, I was really out there doing as much as I could do uh, for what was for what the genre allowed. I mean, we weren't super superstars, but we started to develop our audience uh, nationwide. So we were starting to get a little name. I, I started to promote my own concerts. Uh, and I was that just that uh, entrepreneur that said, okay, I'm going to take advantage. I'm drawing this many people. So I, was, I became a kind of like a promoter too. So uh, uh, it did well. The song, at that time, we were on fire. And I, and I wind up 
on that album, I didn't work with Tolga. I worked with uh, my guys out of San Jose. So one of my trips in San Jose, I met uh, Dajel and Donnie, which was uh, my keyboard player, my drummer. They wind up being, well, Dadger wind up being on my production team after that. And it's, it's with Dadger I started to write the stuff off that particular album. Well, you guys definitely did something right because In My Eyes was a big album, man. I mean, you had your first top 40 song with I Want to Be the One, which went to number 32. Then you released your next single, which was the title track, In My Eyes, and that also made it to the top 40. I was on a roll. You know, I had always been told, you're not going to break out until you on your third album. I'm like, shit, th- I got to do three albums to kind of like become a star? I said, I don't even know if I can even get to three albums. I don't know if I could write that many songs. So my com- but my confidence level was, was, was growing, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I can do this, you know, I really can do this. And I'm writing all these songs and I'm producing hits. And of course, off the In My Eyes album, I mean, we had some, we had some strong stuff. And then of course, you know, other things had developed and we went gold uh, on, on uh, the In My Eyes album and Herb wanted to negotiate a third album, which became the Love and Emotion album. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about Love and Emotion, but you can't get off of In My Eyes, Stevie, without talking about Love Me for Life, which peaked at number 29. That, that's right. And see, and that's what came from Dagel becoming my keyboard player. How I met Dagel was in a show in San Jose one night. I was contracted to do a show at, a, uh, at the San Jose uh, Santa Clara Fairgrounds and I went to the show and my show was empty it, it might have had 40 people 50 people and I was very disappointed and on the way driving out of the fairgrounds there was one of you know the fairgrounds has various like barns or halls you know I asked the limo driver can you pull over right here what is all these cars over here why my place empty and this place is full of people what is going on in there so I stopped in there and the place is absolutely rammed pack with high school kids and uh soon as i walk in there's a keyboard stand and this asian looking kid standing by the keyboards and i'm like what's going on here say oh they're doing a fundraiser uh for uh, i guess one of the high school kids who had got killed in a car accident and the kid that i'm talking to is his name i don't know his name but he wind up being dadjo i had saw frankie beverly and Mays or or uh, alexander o'neill and they had an asian keyboard player in their band. I saw him at the Apollo. And I said, that's what I want. I want an international looking band for Stevie B. I don't want to be just this R&B or this. I want a, I want a different look. So when I met Dad, you had long hair, good looking kid. So I say, can you play? He said, yeah, I can play. I said, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm helping my friend out and this and that. So I say, well, can you write music and all that? He said, yeah. He said, I can write music. I say, do you have anything? And he ran out to the car. He brings back a cassette tape. And I put it in the fucking limo. And guess what song it is? Love me for life. Oh, how I wish that you be mine. And I'm like, who did this? He said, I did. I wrote it. And he says, oh, my, I have a friend, Glenn, and he helps me produce. That's Glenn Gutierrez. But at that time, but that time I, didn't, I didn't ask much more about Glenn. I said, well, I need a keyboard player. Would you like to be in my band and go on the road with me? He said, really? You know, I told him who I was and stuff like that. And he said, when? Did he know who you were? I don't remember if he knew or not knew. And he may have. Yes, I'm thinking he did. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you have to go on the road in the morning. Like right now, I'm leaving tomorrow to go back to New York. And, you know, I want you to go. But I need a drummer, too. I said, do you know any drummers? He said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm one of my friends, is uh, good friends is the drummer, Don McCullough. I said, well, okay. 
And this, you got to remember, it's almost 11 or 12 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock at night. I say, well, can you call him right now? And you got to remember, this is like December 23rd or 22nd. This is right at Christmas time. So I said, well, can you call Don on the phone? So Don was playing in a local band where they played at these hotels. So he wasn't home yet. I said, Dad, you, you got to call him because I want you, I want, I want you guys to come back to we got to remember, I never heard him play before. He's, I, and I went off Dadjo's word. I said, is he good? He said, no, he's really good. Does he have a look like you guys, Filipino, Asian, Hawaiian-looking guys? He said, yeah. He got down on the phone. I talked Don, talked to Don on the phone. I said, this is Stevie B. I'm looking for a drummer. Dadjo gave me your number. I said, I want you to be in my band. Are you interested? And lo and behold, the kid says yes. I wind up buying two tickets. I met him that morning at the airport, and we all flew to New York. He don't have no drums. He don't have nothing. As soon as we get to New York, I go to Sam Ash, and I buy him a whole brand new Black Power Custom system, uh, drums. I wind up getting Dadju keyboards. So we're all now back in the hotel. So I got me, Big Jerry, Dadju. Donnie, I got like a little production crew. And I said, and that's where I wrote, I want to be the one in the hotel in New York. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. And that's when, uh, you know, dad will show me he was really good. And, and Mitty Bliss, he had some really great melodies, cut that song over in Brooklyn. And the record company just went crazy. And it was a demo at the time. I cut that demo in Brooklyn at the studio, turned it in and the record company left it just like it is. And the single that became the hit was that demo. It's a cool story, man. Here's an even cooler story. I want to circle back around to Dagil. Think about that, Stevie. That is crazy, man. If you don't stop your limousine on the way out, there's a couple of things that happen there. First of all, you don't meet Dagil. And second of all, you don't have Love Me for Life. It's crazy the way that life works out, man. It's like destiny. Destiny. And it happens that way, too. That's how, that's how, that's how life is. And, and, and I tell people sometimes it just takes one phone call to change your life. So Dagil wrote Love Me for Life. Yes. And you just basically went in and put your own spin on it, correct? Correct. Correct. I told him that's what motivated me because I wanted to cut that song for my album. When he let me hear it that night, I said, I want to cut your song. He said, you do? I said, I love this song. His, he had that tenor voice. Song was a sweet song, great song. I say, I want that song. And that's what motivated me to bring him on the road with me too. And he wound up being a great producer. That's good stuff, man. These stories are fantastic. Stevie, let's move on to 1989 and Love and Emotion, uh, your producers at the time, Glenn Gutierrez, also Warren Allen Brooks. Tell me about Warren Allen Brooks. Early on, before the Toga days, I was in a group with a Warren Allen Brooks, and Warren was a cool little R&B producer. He could, he could produce, but he couldn't sing. And the problem with Warren is he wanted to sing and couldn't sing worth shit. I knew I could hold a note, so we wound up doing this record. I think you can probably pull it up on YouTube. It's called Boy Toy by Friday Friday. But I, we got a deal on it with McCola Records out of LA, out of Cali. And uh, our claim to fame was that record. And Warren got a big head. His ego went crazy. And we kind of separated. He went his way. And I went kind of went my way. And that's when I went on to Lauderdale and all that. Warren kind of disappeared. Just so happens between the In My Eyes album and the Love and Emotion album, I was getting these calls at the record company. And they kept saying, this guy's trying to call you. This guy, Warren Allen Brooks, is trying to call you. Uh, he's in the hospital. So the kid that used to work with Warren and me is uh, Valentino used to work with Warren. But Valentino is actually my road manager at the time, which became one of my arch enemies because he helped steal Jaya from me with the record label. So uh, Valentino was out with with Jaya and I got a call 
from Warren out of, he was in a mental institution. He had a nervous breakdown. And the label kept saying, you need to call Warren. He's calling you. This guy, Warren Brooks. They didn't know who Warren Brooks at the, at the time. They didn't know who he was. Of course, later on, they didn't know who he was because he wrote seven hits, seven songs on my Love and Emotion album. But the story went like this. I called Warren uh, back eventually. I was on the road. And uh, he was in the hospital. He said, you know, Steve, I'm sorry what happened to us. Because by that time, he had already heard about my success. So it was killing him that he was in a group with me. And then now I'm going on to make a success and he has not done anything. And Warren at that time was back in the day, he was really suffering from bad depression. And I would go by his, he had a little, uh, like a guest house he would stay at in Miami and like very morbid. He was always crying. And I said, Warren, you know, one day, man, you're going to make it. You know, I was always motivating him, taking food every once in a while. I wasn't Stevie B at the time, but I was always his you know, I was in his camp. You know, I wanted him to be successful. He was good. I thought he was good. He called me and he said, you know, I couldn't take it any longer. I heard your record. I hear your records on the radio every day and it was killing me. And uh, I want to apologize to you, this and that. He says, Steve, man, I don't have anything. I don't have a keyboard. I don't have anything. I'm, you know, I'm broke. And at that time I had B-Land, which I had 13 acre place with two studios. It's beautiful. So I got on the phone with the nurse and I said, well, tell me what his status is. Can I get him out? And I was in New York at the time. She said, yeah, I mean, he can leave anytime he wants to, but he doesn't have anywhere to go. So I sent him a keyboard and a drum machine to the hospital because I said, well, it's better that you stay there for now. That perked him up. It cheered him up. He said, you gonna, you'll do that for me? I said, of course I'll do that for me. I always thought you were a great writer. I said, uh, what happened to that song you let me hear a long time ago? Uh, the Postman song thing. Oh, man, I threw that whole book. I throw the book away. I throw all that shit away. I said, you didn't throw the book. He had a book of songs. I mean, it must have been a couple hundred. But he had played for me a couple of times on just playing and singing on the keyboard. Got your letter. That's how he sang. Got the Postman did the other day. Though I decided to write you this song. I said, fuck, Warren, one day that record's going to be a big record. He said, you think so, Steve? I said, record, that record. I said, but you got to let me sing it. So when I finally got him, you know, out of the hospital, I said, do you remember that song? I want to do the, the Postman song thing. Because the song's called Because I Love You, but I only remember about Got Your Letter from the Postman. And the funniest thing is the record company loved that phrase so much they named the song Because I Love You, the Postman song. They had a double title. So I send Warren out to my ranch in Rolling Oaks in, in Lauderdale. And uh, he wound up writing seven songs on my Love and Emotion album. I sent him out there. I said, I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to think about anything. All I want you to do is think about music. Forget about all your sadness and all that and I'm pretty sure he was still manic because they were starting to give him some lithium and he was feeling a little better. But I needed him to be a little sad because he wrote Broken Hearted, Love and Emotion. Go look at those credits on that album. He was on a tear. And because I love you, oh, my God, I'm like, dude, you are on fire. So he wound up became, becoming a millionaire, you know, with me. So that's 89. The record comes out. As that record going up, then I started to go down. I break up with the girl, fighting with the record company. It was sort of like the best of and the worst of both worlds. I was number one in the world, but personally, I was less than zero. I was in manic depression. Uh, the record company was stealing the money, you know, broke up with the girl. All of those bad things that could happen to an artist. How bad did it get? I mean, I was done. I was, I mean, I, at some point later on, I mean, I was suicidal. Oh, damn. It was man. bad. It was bad. It was bad. So at that point in your life, going through what you were going through, were you able to enjoy any of your success? Because at that point in time, with Because I Love You, the Postman song, that song was number one. I know. So were you able to enjoy any of that? Not at all. 
Not at all. That's really unfortunate. How long was Because I Love You at number one? Four weeks at number one. Four weeks at number one, Stevie. I mean, you did it. And that song was huge at that time, man. I mean, that song was everywhere. Four weeks at number one, man. That's so awesome. That's historical. Yeah, man. I mean, no doubt you made history. So after you pulled yourself out of that funk, looking back on that particular time in your life, what were your thoughts? I thought, I I just thought it was such a shame because I wasn't able to parlay it. I know now a number one record at at that time would have parlayed to at least 50 million, 100 million dollars for all the things that come with that. I had some blessings that came with that too. Richard Griffith from uh, Epic Records and I wind up doing a deal and in the middle of my depression and all that kind of stuff. Sony kind of saved me. I wasn't able to parlay it as big as I should have. It's sort of like getting a Grammy. When you get a Grammy, it should turn into 30 different parts for the actor or the actress. Uh, big things come after that. It's sort of like you're you're a made man or you're a made woman after you reach number one or you get a Grammy. And uh, I was just so out of touch. The weightiness of uh, the moment uh, was so overwhelming and the, the, the loss that I had taken, the hit that I had taken emotionally, it, it was sort of like a tsunami hit me without me even understanding what was going on with me, with my psyche, my emotions. It was, it was a runaway freight train. But at the same time, there was a, a record or an album that was creating history and I could not join it. I helped it go number one because our, you know, there was a big fight between me and the label. They signed to RCA. RCA wind up taking all my groups with Herb. It was, it's just a lot. You got to read the book to get all the details. But RCA and Butch Wah and those people there convinced me to help the record because I wasn't about to help the record. I hated that fucking label, hated everything about it. And they convinced me to say, Stevie, we're going to take you to number one. If you help us, call the radio stations, call out. You know, they need the artists to help, you know, to do the promotion and marketing. And I wasn't about it. You know, I just emotionally wasn't there. And they really sat me down and said, look, we're going to change your career. We're going to take you to number one. Let's just say I was sane enough to listen to good counsel, even though I was sick, uh, helped the record and it didn't go to number one and we made history. What exactly was it that sent you into depression? Was it the stuff with the label, the divorce with your wife? I mean, what was going on? It wasn't even with my wife. It was actually, I had already uh, separated from Joy, my first wife. uh, And then I was with Claudette, the girl from Rhode Island. And then I think it was the, you know, normally when you have a a breakdown or a breakup of the psyche, uh, it's an accumulation of things. And, uh, there's just so much the human soul can can take without having some type of recuperation. And at that time, I was insomnia, insomnia was uh, heavy. I wasn't sleeping well, and I wasn't recovering. My recover time, my sleep patterns, uh, now that I know, uh, somebody needed to say recuperation. And by that time, I was already crashed and burned and um, had the number one, went out on a tour in a horrible state of mind. And I still had obligations and I had my kids and I was still sane enough and strong enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to throw my career in the garbage. And I just made some choices and decisions. And I went back to B-Land and I started my recovery over there and at my home. And Brazil was calling me at the time. So this was like two years later, uh, was recovering pretty good. But, you know, I was having my moments. I was still, you know, getting over the whole thing. And the funniest thing is Destiny took me to Rio, where the first night in Rio I did two shows. And that night I met my current wife, who I've been married to for 27 years. Nice. There you go, man. Another story of Destiny. I like it. Stevie, talk to me about the whole record label business. Talk about that, man. It just seems like 
artist after artist get bad deals. I mean, from yourself to New Edition. I mean, the stories are endless. Talk to me about how the record label business works and why it works that way. Because it's just the nature. It's the nature of the business. It is just really made for the most part for all of the participants to fail except for the labels it's the kind of deals that are structured i mean they would do uh 90 10 deals where they would give us 10 percent of our own shit that we developed and we paid for because you wind up getting recouped 100 percent of everything so the label never took a risk they put all the risk on us they did chargebacks i mean you got to remember if a 12 inch went out the label could press up 12 inches at that time for let's just say they could press them up for a dollar well every record that went out they charged the artist back 250 so they would make money just on the pressing to go out to the distributors so they never had and then they could charge it back when it didn't sell so we were always on the hook and you know and we just didn't know any better and i didn't have an attorney i was up against attorneys so th these were just bad decisions but who's to say that they would even accept my deal if I wouldn't accepted that shitty deal. So you wind up going into bad deals. You don't know how bad they are until you go and do the forensics. And at some point I did the forensics. Sony backed me, got me out of that deal. Uh, it was just hell for, you know, during that two year period when I went to recuperate. And then I got into the thing with Tommy Matola over at Sony. I didn't sign with Tommy. I wound up going with Richard over at Epic. And then that became a fight. Because Tommy wanted me for himself. And this created a big fight because I couldn't. Because Richard, who was the president of Epic at the time, which is a sister label. But Columbia and Tommy Matola is his boss. So that's going to be a battle amongst the heads. One is the president of Epic. But the other one is president of Epic and Sony, which is Tommy Matola. And Tommy wind up putting my healing album. And if you notice, I call that album The Healing because that's what I was going through at the time. And uh, Tommy put that album to sleep. So you asked me about the money. And uh and they had, I had a guaranteed $3 million deal at that time that only got the first million, and then they, they killed the second one. Tommy and them killed the second and third one. The money I was supposed to make under, per, under great guidance, proper tours, right state of mind, strong direction, it probably could have parlayed into maybe $50 million. Oh, my God, dude. $50 million. Ouch. That hurts just to say. Yeah, that sucks, man. Of course, Tommy Mottola, head of Sony Music back in the day, also married to Mariah Carey at some point in time, which was also back in the day as well. Stevie, did you not have anybody in your career or in your life at that point in time directing you or guiding you in any way? Yeah, I was with Charlie Gilreath at the time. Charlie was by my side and it just really became even overwhelming for Charlie. I was a handful at the time. I mean, I just, I just was unstable, Cliff. Just was not a stable person at the time. But just thank God it wasn't as bad as it could have been. At the height of your career, did you ever tour the world? I never got a chance to tour the world. I didn't do Top of the Pops over in Europe because I was already on a tour here and I couldn't get out of it. So when, when they called me to do Top of the Pops, which I should have done because that's how you break Europe, I just could not get away. It was just no way to do it. And that was one of the worst things that could have ever happened to me there. And I wind up never really developing my career in Europe. Uh, Germany, I went, you know, Philippines, that kind of thing. But I never went to Europe correctly not close because you got to remember that was supposed to be a whole new revenue stream when the united states is slow you can always go to canada you can go to middle east you can go to dubai you can go asia you can go to africa and of course you can go to europe i mean my music had huge european fan because i love you was big huge but i never but i never supported the record in europe between 1987 and 1990 do you have any idea how big you were in europe were you just huge off the charts 
I'm pretty sure. I mean, you got to remember, I beat Bette Midler, Elton John, and Whitney Houston. So, you know, it was a number one record around the world. I mean, it was as big as it was. Uh, but it, it's it's only as big as what I, how I support it, how the label support it. And you go and, and you have to follow through and build your audience. Just because you have a hit record, at some point that hit record is going to die. If you don't go over as an artist doing television, doing the video shows, doing the radio stations, just the normal things to support a record, out of sight is out of mind. Yeah, man, well said. That would have been cool to have seen you on Top of the Pops. Like you said, if you're going to break Europe, right, everybody pretty much does Top of the Pops. But if you want to go back to that time, it's pretty cool, man. You took down some giants in Mariah Carey and Elton John and Bette Midler. So congratulations on that. Moving right along, Stevie, 1992 rolls around. I guess you're feeling better. You're a bit out of your funk. You release Healing. How did that record do? I think it was mediocre, considering it didn't come out until, remember, I had nine, 1990 was uh, Because I Love You. The Healing album didn't come out to 92. So I was I was out of radio at that time. Tommy made sure that I didn't have nothing on radio. So by the time I went, we were ready to go to radio, they wasn't feeling me. I lost my, I, let's just say I lost my position. I'll tell you, man, I really like Pump That Body off of uh, Healing. High energy, good dance track, man. One of those songs that just makes you feel good. Really dug that song. That's a fucking great-ass record, ain't it? <laughs> yeah, it definitely is, man. Certainly my favorite track off of Healing. Also on that song, Stevie, you tried your hand at rap, man. Doing some rap on that song. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I did something to think about, which was a, uh, on that, and I did uh, Pump That Body. And I have fun doing I got to be honest. I was kind of feeling better. I have fun doing that record. I have fun. It was really cathartic. It was healing for me to get some of the stuff Sony really gave me because uh, the record that really got me that deal was Prayer. This is my prayer. Tommy heard that record at a studio before I moved back to B-Land. And uh, he heard that record and he cried when he first heard it. And he said, he told Charlie, he says, okay, tell Stevie I'll back him with his lawsuit against Sony, against Herb and, and the record label and tell him I'll give him an album deal. He said, you'll have the freedom to do whatever you want. And they gave me the money and the whole night. Now that money wind up funding my lawsuit in which, you know, they reamed that money heavily, you know, cost me millions to do that. But that was the beginning, sort of like the beginnings of the end of the, the momentous Stevie B. It was a sad story. It really was a sad story. Yeah, man. Sad story for sure. But certainly nice to hear that Tommy Matola eventually circled back around to you. Stevie, right around that time that you're talking about, 92, 93, that was pretty much it for freestyle, was it not? I mean, it was phasing out and it was on its way out, correct? Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty, much, it was pretty much over uh, by that time. And if you notice, I never really did any freestyle songs on the Healing album. Uh, they were really just totally different. And I've always been totally different. I never really did a, a quote-unquote freestyle album. Uh, I just did what I what we thought was great music. And I always considered myself a little bit of European feel anyways. Uh, I was a little off-keel than what Noel and George and all them was. I was a little different because I had the big ballad. And then I had No More Tears. And I had all different kinds of records. Uh, never tried to copy a style, you know, at the time. So I was sort of like in a no man's land place. But later on, the freestyle people sort of adopted me and started to give me that title. 
you know, you're the king of freestyle because I was the best paid artist at that time in the genre. And I was really one of the only ones that had a band. And uh, I was always a, a notch above these guys. When you released the ballad, Because I Love You, the Postman song, did you get any sort of backlash from the freestyle community over that? No, because you got to remember, there was no congruent freestyle community. Because I Love You gave me a... Remember, I was heavy Latino and Latina before Love and Emotion. So I was with the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans, the Italians, the Greeks, everybody except for African-Americans. I did not have that audience. So I had everybody but them because because I Love You was a number one pop record also. So I had a white audience, which was huge too. Whatever backlash I got, it wasn't because Puerto Ricans and Dominicans like ballads too. They accepted it. So there was no formed freestyle community like we have now when we go online in their freestyle communities and a set place you can go to. It wasn't like that back then. Because remember, we didn't have the communication skills or the communication options that we have now. So we don't know what's out there. We're all very dependent on radio and television to know if we have an audience or BDS so when you put out a record, it's your radio play and your sales that tell you whether you had an audience or not. Because we weren't doing uh, the fan club mailing lists and stuff like that until later on, you know? Certainly. How have your residuals been through the years? I mean, we do okay. You know, it's, you know, you, you had to fight because nobody knew how to regulate the digital world. It was sort of like the wild, wild west. And the record companies really never paid attention to the digital world they really rejected it a lot of non-record company or record label businesses took over the music business like apple itunes took over they're not a record label never was never recorded a record but because they knew the technology would eventually take over they were setting themselves up to be the leaders when napster and all those people came on board the record companies took years to do digital downloads they rejected it so we weren't protected and then there were it was lawless so you're asking me about my residuals there were people that are still stealing from me right now my rights i mean i'm getting them back slowly but surely from those old analog contracts that they took advantage of us not fighting them or not having the ability to challenge them because it takes millions. Even if you're right, you know, you can't go to war with these people unless you got money. And that is the case now. Even LMR to this day don't pay me my royalties from Jaya, my old albums. I don't get royalties from those. Never did. You know, I still get my BMI checks. I still get my sound... Uh, sound scan and sound uh, exchange. I still get that stuff. It, it, I do. I do. So the answer to the question is I probably get 50% or 30% of what I should be getting. Yeah. And that just kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in regards to the record labels and deals. And it's just shady, man. And it's really unfortunate for the artist. Let me ask you this, Stevie, what kind of support and love did you get from radio back in the day? I had my moments at radio, but they loved me. I mean, I, mean, I was a part of the mainstream. I mean, you know, I was like Drake. You know, I was I was at the top of the food chain. They lived and breathed Stevie B. I, I mean, I was like the breath of the dance stations. You know, Stevie B was the heart of it. So you asked me about my relationship. Where where they were good, it was very good. Where it was just non-existent like the Alabamas and all those. Uh, now, I, I could do Louisiana. I could do New Orleans, Lafayette, and be surprised mobile all that i did business now i'm gonna take that back a little bit i'm gonna walk that back carolina's not so much georgia not so much but alabama i did a little business mobile 
down along the coast there, we did better. Where they had the beaches, Panama City, Shreveport, Lafayette, Baton Rouge, those were big. The Louisiana whites, even to this day, I'm an icon in, in Lafayette, New Orleans, Shreveport. I mean, big love. That was an aberration. I think that was an aberration. Now, could it have been as strong in other areas? It never showed it to me in requests for me. Because normally, you know your 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 demand by how often people call you for shows and how many people you draw once you get there. It'll let you know whether you got an audience or not. I actually graduated from LSU back in 99. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, man. Shut yeah, man. up. Well, you know, Cajun Dome, Cajun Dome and all that, Lafayette, New Iberia. And, you know, I wind up getting a band right out of uh, New Iberia. Really? Very cool. A band called Exchange. Where are they today? You know, they went on with their lives. They were with me for a minute. Uh, I'm still in contact. A couple of guys had died. Lindell, I talked to, was your keyboard player. Uh, little Steve became a manager, Blockbuster. and uh, A couple of the guys still are around, and they come They come to the show. Uh, they come to the show. As a matter of fact, I use uh, some of their relatives as my band members sometimes when I go and do the casinos down there and stuff because the group exchange kind of like is still together. Yeah, man. South Louisiana. No place like it in the country. Back in 97, 98, Stevie, I was living in Baton Rouge, and I saw Noel, an Egyptian lover, at some little club in Baton Rouge. Place was packed, man. Yeah, People went man. nuts for those two guys. Egyptian lover. The Egyptian lover. It was huge. Him and Kuiper. Kuiper's a Baton Rouge guy. Yeah. Look, man. So, so you got to remember, the Louisiana flavor is different from everywhere else. I mean, where Kuiper and Egyptian Lover could, and you can do a Zydeco band and have 3,000 people. That's some crazy stuff. Tic-Tac-Toe by Kuiper's your era, Stevie. Went to number 14 on the pop charts. What's your take on the song Tic-Tac-Toe? Big record. Big record. And I was a fan, I was a fan of Kuiper and all of them. And Kuiper did some shows with me. He did a little run with me at one time. Good guy. Very nice guy. Always was a family man. Super nice guy. Uh, I don't know where he is today, but, but I hope he's doing well. Super nice guy. We always kind of got along. Tic-Tac-Toe. Yeah, he's actually still in Baton Rouge, man. He's between Baton Rouge and Atlanta. I've actually been trying to get him on the podcast, so maybe one of these days he'll come on. Stevie, let's go back to 1987. You're talking about your music being beach-type music. I'm talking about how it's feel-good music. One of those songs that was a beach song and had that feel-good-type sound to it was Summer Girls by Dino. Really liked that track. Where is Dino today? Dino just had a massive heart attack. Yeah, this was in on the, on the social media. His wife, Caroline, you know, he married Caroline from Cover Girls. I mean, he might be on a pacemaker at this point. Damn, I had no idea. Yeah, and he's pretty young because I think Dino is in his 50s. Yeah, that's pretty young, man. That sucks. Were you guys cool with each other? We were We were cordial. You know, because you remember, I moved to Vegas, and he was—he lived in Vegas forever. When he when he did that Summer Girl record with Stevie G, I think it was his manager. And Stevie died of a drug overdose. His and that was his boy, Stevie D or Stevie something. Dino didn't do very much after the Summer Girls Summer Girl records, uh, and then he, you know, because Dino was a pretty good producer, so I think he had a couple girl groups like the In Vogue R and B kind of thing ish. He was heavy into that, and uh, I didn't know much that he did over the years but uh, he would show up to some of the shows every once in a while because his wife was on and we were very cordial we're very nice to each other and i always respected him he's very talented but we never got a chance to work together you know how people say oh we should do something together you know uh and i always wanted to work with him because their production was exceptional uh, hopefully he gets better uh but they did save him evidently because he was i mean he was on his deathbed yeah it really sucks to hear man get well soon dino Stevie, being that you're a South Florida guy, I know you're familiar with Will to Power. 
produced and founded by Bob Rosenberg, who's a pretty big producer down there in the South Florida area. Did you have any sort of relationship with Bob? Not a relationship per se. Uh, you know, we were co-artists. I mean, you know, he had a uh, will to power and they did their thing and I respected Bob. And I, and I like what they did. They always had hit records. But as far as we'd never gone out to eat, we'd never hung out, we'd never been in a studio together, none of that. Stevie, at the height of your career, what was it like, man? Just tell me what it was like, being famous, having fans, all that sort of stuff. Talk to me about that and what that was like. Is there a word beyond incredible? Would that be amazing? Because, you know, we throw, we throw words around. I speak Portuguese, so certain words you can't use. So in English, it was the best. Yeah, it was the best. Wow. I got to tell you, it, it was sort of like having your cake and eat it twice. It was just chicks, the, the adoration, the hearing yourself on radio, people calling you for deals, that demand for your product. I mean, you can't help but your ego is just so boosted. You're hyped. Man, ain't nothing better than that. Yeah, man. That had to be pretty awesome. Pretty much, uh, pretty much oh, whatever you man. want, huh? Yeah, yeah, whatever you want. Now, I never, now, I'm going to be honest with you. We never reached the levels that the rappers reached, and I never reached the Gloria Estefan's level. We were sort of that in-between. We did okay. The big, big, big money never made it to us. I could say that. The big fame never made it to us. We had fame with a little F, and we sort of like been holding on kind of like ever since. Well, hopefully that'll change with this new, with this new album. Hopefully it'll change. Speaking of the new album, man, The King Returns, coming soon. Stevie, tell me about the album and tell me about the process and what it takes to make an album in this day and age. I just finished that damn thing maybe three weeks ago. It took me eight months to do that album. But it's a, it's a hard process, you know, because the playing field is different. You know, as your own A&R director, I have to decide choice of songs, production, choice of instruments. How am I going to compete? Things have changed a little bit. What's hot? What's not? We're always analyzing. And then you're, gonna, you're talking about song choice. Am I going to pick the right song to fit in right now? Because you got to remember, this thing is linear. It's always moving. The, free, the, the music business is constantly moving. So I have to be able to think forward. So if I'm thinking about doing a record now, it's not going to come out to my maybe nine months from now or even a year from now. So can I throw the pass all the way down and uh, anticipate that I'm, it's going to fall into the right arms or the right ears down the road? We're always playing that game. So that's why you try to do timeless productions and timeless records. And I think I might have captured that on this album. So talk to me about how you make money today. Obviously, I can't walk into a Sam Goody or a Camelot Music and buy your CD just doesn't work that way today. So how do you make money in the digital world today? The possibilities of us making money today is so much better than it was back then when you're talking about the music business. Normally, when we turn that music over to the record company's cliff, it was over. We wasn't going to ever see another dollar. We use that record company as a promotional and marketing tool to keep us relative and relevant in the radio world and where we would make our money in shows merchandise but in today's world it's been elusive pretty much in the digital world you could actually get your money i mean i get my sound exchange checks when they play my music on on the digital radios and all that shit all over the world i'm getting some i'm getting that money all the digital uh revenue streams are are available to us and it, and the possibilities for an artist and as a producer and as a writer for you to really see your money is 10 million times better than what it was 
20 years ago or 30 years ago. That money that you that you thought you was going to get on your publishing and all that shit years ago, they wasn't going to give it. They're going to they're going to rob us. But today you create a digital footprint and it lives with that record forever. And if there's any money coming your way, the digital algorithms know that the bootleggers can't get it. And that's why it's so much better that way. And uh, the cost factors are down now. The ability to steal it is so much greater. And that's the downside of the the virtual world, but possibilities of getting a, a huge sum of money. On, I mean, imagine you can go on Spotify and get, you know, 50 million or 100 million streams and you can become a millionaire just from that. You got Spotify millionaires, you got Pandora millionaires, you got YouTube millionaires. So those options wasn't available. You had to wait. And hopefully the record company didn't charge you back for every little piece of dust. Yeah, man, just those, you know, we talked about it earlier. Those record label stories, man, are just brutal. Um, one last thing, Stevie, then I'll let you get out of here. Let's talk about Pitbull real quick. I know somewhere around 2013, he approached you to do some sort of Spring Love remix. You guys end up doing it. But to my knowledge and what I understand, that didn't go too well. What exactly happened? I don't know why that didn't go too well, Cliff. I'm going to be honest with you. Something happened between the time Pitt reached out to me and the time we cut the record and the time that he was struggling with his career and then he was on TVT and they were fighting. So I kind of may, might have gotten caught in between transition and politics but he never came back and cleared it up. He got off of me. He called me and said, man, I grew up on a diet of you in Miami, and uh, I want you to come down. I want to cut this record with you. I was a little leery at the time because Pitt was kind of like not at the top of his game, how he became once he had the bigger, bigger records and just created that new genre that he did. Because, you know, he was sort of like a bass music with Luke and all them, you know, Shake That Kulo, all that kind of stuff, you know. So far cry from being the... The Euro kind of artist that he became. So we cut the record and then he disappeared. And then he got into the fight with TVT. And then I was trying to contact him, contact him. Con and he just never, he never reached out to me again. Uh, Cliff. And I left messages with people that I know got to him. but They said that he did not give a response. And so something must have happened to where he turned off on me. I don't know what it was. And I got to be honest with you. I'm at the point where I don't really give a fuck anymore. Because if you a man and you want to tell me something, just tell me. If I did something or said something that offended you, be a man enough to come back and say, hey, man, you didn't. And I, you know, I, and I should have the right to apologize. Now, you might not accept my apology, but at least give me the opportunity to give an explanation. Because the explanation might be different than what you think and what you were thinking. You know, and I definitely didn't think I would be tainting my relationship with him because it really never got off the starting block as good as it could have been. But I'm pretty sure he was chasing his money at the time and he didn't he didn't really include me in his world. Hey, for what it's worth, man, I still like the original the best. The track that you did with Pitbull, the remix, pretty cool. Not bad, but I definitely like the original better. Let's get into some plugs and let's also get into your latest album titled Best of Life. I know you have new music coming out. Is it going to be available on vinyl? Is it available on CD? Where can people buy it? Talk about that. Totally, totally. My fans still buy CDs a lot. Matter of fact, if I had my choice, I would just release it on vinyl and CD. And where can they buy it? They're going to buy it off my site. I own Royalty Radio app, so I own that radio station, Royalty Radio. You can get that on any of the digital stores. Uh, I have my own radio station. I have my own labels. I have my own stuff now, so uh, they'll be able to get it. I'm just about finishing up a deal that I had. Uh, we were supposed to cut. I'm not going to say it publicly because it just might go south. But uh, uh, to take care of the label stuff, and then I focus in on 
some of the new artists. I have a feature with a girl named Jenny Renee, a record called It's All Right. I have a feature with Dynasty. The new Spring Love is called Cutie. Uh, Spring Love, You're My Cutie. I have uh, another feature with uh, GC with a record called uh, Now That We Found Love Again. So I put a lot of people on on this record uh, because that's what's hot right now, doing features. And, and it's an opportunity for me, look, I'm 61, going to be 62. You have to let some of these young people and young visuals come in to attract some of these younger people and mid-level uh, age groups. You know what I mean? So uh, we got quite a bit of stuff on this album, but I did quite a few features, and I, hopefully I did those people justice also and what I lent to them. Like it, man. You got a lot going on. Give me your plug, Stevie. Let's plug some stuff, social media platforms, whatever it may be. Let's go ahead and plug some stuff. Go for it. Yeah, let's plug Let's plug it. Yeah, let's plug in the StevieBmusic.com. Let's plug in the Royalty Radio app. And then uh, let's plug in the brand new album that's coming uh, hopefully in the next, I'll, I'll say in the next three weeks, it should be already. Sweet. Looking forward to that. Be on the lookout for Best of Life. I'll also hook up your Facebook and Instagram socials on my webpage, which is beingfamouspodcast.com. While we're at it, I also want to plug the Freestyle Love Jam happening February 14th at the Don Haskins Theater located in El Paso, Texas. It's going to be one heck of a show. Performing will be yourself, TKA, Shannon, Lisa Lisa, Lanier, Debbie Deb, Pretty Poison, and Stacey Q. Stevie, much love, man. Greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast keeping it real and sharing all your stories. It was very educational. Best of luck to you the rest of the way, man. Appreciate you guys and uh, look for us to come out on the tour, but the new album is uh, on the way. We got really, really great music. And so hopefully once I send you the album, you can critique it and add it in to some of your dialogue. Definitely. I appreciate that. Shoot it over to me and I'll certainly talk about it on one of my upcoming shows. Hey, thanks again, man. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, buddy.